Good Sunday morning, Iowa. It's Dr. Rick Godding. Thank you again for spending some time with me here today and uh, in this uh, very close to springtime. We have to remember it's very, it's very close to springtime. As a matter of fact, spring break is for Des Moines Public Schools is less than a month away. So we can all look forward to spring. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I went over a week or two ago my lamenting of uh, those days when I used to live in Hawaii. Of course, one thing about living in Hawaii is things are very expensive. And it's interesting because I talked to my grandmother the other day. She's 92, and she she still lives alone. She's still doing pretty well. You know, she drives around. She lives in a little town, drives around, and uh, takes care of all her own business. And, you know, she's sharp as a tack when I call her. So it's nice. It's amazing. You know, I see a lot of patients in my practice, sort of the same thing. And I, you know, some of it, Grandma, I wouldn't say that she has a healthy lifestyle. I mean, she doesn't drink or smoke, but she certainly kind of just eats whatever she wants, and she has never exercised since I've known her. And there she is just cruising along. It's almost not fair to the rest of us that have to, you know, I, I think about every single meal is just a big calculation of, well, what did I eat last, and what am I going to eat now? And then, you know, it's just... That's the way of the human condition is that uh, some people are going to be blessed with uh, longevity and good health and some people just aren't and it's it's tough. But that's what we have to deal with and it's all good and I'm glad grandma's doing well. She So the reason I brought her up is I was talking to her and she was talking about prices of everything since we started talking about prices. And it's, uh, you know especially if you're on a fixed income. Now, Grandma has, she's doing fine. Her house, they paid their house off when I was in high school, my grandma and grandpa, the house that they had lived in since uh, the nineteen early 1950s, and that was all paid off when I was, before I was in high school, I believe. And so she doesn't have a lot of expenses. She has a pension. She worked for Phillips Petroleum, and, you know, they never, they were always pretty frugal, so she's fine, but still, you know, you watch those prices go up, and it's it's crazy. I went, I saw the other day that stamps are going to go up to sixty three cents. Now that is a twenty six percent increase since two thousand eighteen. Now I realize that part of that is just the fact that a lot of people are not sending as many letters, and so because of email, and so in order to provide the same service, they have to charge more. But some of that is also just that they printed money, especially during COVID. I believe during, in the COVID time frame, 40% of all dollars that were ever printed were printed in that time frame. And, you know, but that's a, that's a stunning increase, 26%. And even, you know, gasoline was a dollar seventy-three in 2020. <laughs> and we see what it is now. And again, there's a lot of factors. The prices for everything, chicken, I was at, uh, I don't want to throw any grocery stores under the bus, but I was at a grocery store the other day and chicken breasts were $3. And uh, just, you know, sort of your regular size chicken breasts, two for $6. And then 
pound of ground beef was over five for the ten percent. You know, everything you look at, it's crazy. And so I think of all the people, and there's probably a reasonable number of people who listen to this show who are on Social Security. And I know that's got to be really hurting because the Social Security cost of living allowance is nowhere near the amount of inflation. And even if you look at the the government reported inflation rate, so it peaked at 9% in June of last year, and it's running, I think the numbers came out the other day at 6.2 or something like that. But add those together, if it's 9% to back in June and it's 6% now, assume it's going to be near 6% in June, that's 15% in two years. And I don't know anybody whose income went up 15%. Uh, and especially if you're on Social Security and especially if you live on Social Security, it can really start to hurt and so I definitely feel for that. And so there are, you know, I've talked about this a long time ago when things were kind of going crazy, but I just want to say that there are some things you can do. And the the ones that I think are the most effective, you know, sort of on your day-to-day, first of all, if you use stamps, buy a ton of forever stamps. Buy, you know, years worth of forever stamps because they, you know, they're a tremendous inflation hedge. I mean, if you were to use six or eight stamps a month, you know, I mean, it's not a ton of money, but it's something, you know, you can save on. The other is non-perishable consumer staples. So things like bars of soap, if you buy, you know, make a drive down and uh, to a Costco and get a big box of bars of soap. And all of these little things can add up because, I mean, you can't, you can only store meat for a year or so in the freezer before it starts to go pretty, starts to really kind of degrade after a year. So that's a tough one. You can get sealed buckets and put pasta in them. Uh, You can buy these sealed buckets for food storage and put pasta in them. But uh, things like razors, shaving cream. Now, I will say that razors and shaving cream do have a limited lifespan. It's not forever, but certainly you can get a year or two out of them. Things like soap, liquid soap, bleach, things like that. I know that if, if I'm thinking about it when I go to the grocery store and I'm, I'm thinking, geez, wow, you know, a basket of groceries just keeps on climbing. I'm, I, I certainly know that uh, those people out there, you know, my mom and my grandma's age, it really can be a little worrisome and kind of frightening when, you're, when your income has no mechanism to improve, and uh, the prices of everything keep going up. And, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you could swing backyard chickens, that's a real economical way to get calories on the plate. But just one of those things I think about. I think it's because when I sit down with people, I try, you know, it's a a busy practice I have, um, but I really try any time I can to know, sort of get to know what's going on in people's lives. And so I see these types of uh, things that people struggle with and and I just think about them because uh, it's kind of tough to see sometimes, uh, some of these things. But, uh, but anyway, it's inflation. It's here. It's the Federal Reserve keeps increasing the interest rate so that inflation will come down a bit. But I would say we're going to be 
it's going to be a long time before they get back to what they think is their normal inflation rate, which they shoot for, which is 2%. I mean, that's going to take a while. So in the interim, everybody's cost of living goes up and everybody's lifestyle goes down. So there are these these smaller kind of things that you can do to save save dollars here and there. So I want to talk about something, some upper extremity things that I don't really talk about much. I think the thing that got me thinking about it was Brock Purdy's injury, and I haven't had an update as to whether he's had his surgery. I'm sure he has. Of course, he would have had the Tommy John surgery. And so what it is is his elbow got bent to the side and injured what's called the medial collateral ligament. And so they'll reconstruct that either with a a ligament that they harvest from him or a cadaveric ligament, or sometimes they can use a synthetic ligament. I'm not up on that. I don't do that surgery. It's very specialized. It's not uh, something that very many orthopedic surgeons do. The bulk of them are done by a few orthopedic surgeons. I don't know the number, but I wouldn't think there's more than two or three surgeons in Iowa that do a number of those just based on the population and the relative rarity of the injury. And elbows are interesting because I, the only operation that I routinely do on the elbow is a tennis elbow operation. So sometimes I'll do some fractures, some pretty basic fractures, but if it's really bad fracture, I send it to an upper extremity surgeon. So in, in orthopedics, so everybody, you go through your four years of medical school and then you go through your five years of orthopedic surgery and then if you want to subspecialize, you do a year of subspecialty work called a fellowship. And there are, there's a few. So there's sports medicine and so those are the ones who are going to practice mostly with young athletes. Now, I did a sports medicine shoulder and knee fellowship. So it was sports medicine combined with adult reconstruction, so joint replacement. I do some sports medicine, not nearly what I used to do. Um, that's just based on the population demographics here where I'm practicing in Carroll. And so sports medicine is one. Their spine is some orthopedic surgeons will specialize in spine. Now, once they do spine, they really... So a sports medicine doc, sometimes like myself, I've done the fellowship, but I do general orthopedics. I do fractures and some some hand that I'll go into a little bit. And then, you know, fractures, joint replacement, and, and uh, sports medicine. There's a spine. You can do a fellowship in spine surgery. You can do a fellowship in pediatric surgery. So now a pediatric orthopedic surgeon is going to do mostly kids and probably wouldn't do really any adults. A lot of it's going to be fracture work. Some of them will do kids' spines. Some of them won't. They'll do pelvic and lower extremity growth problems that they fix, uh, deformities and things like that. So sports medicine, spine, there's upper extremity, which is basically the shoulder down to and including the hand. Then there's some of them that are just shoulder and elbow and don't do much hand. And then there's hand. Now, all of these are different fellowships, right? So there's all these different specialties that orthopedic surgeons can can do. There is total joint replacement, which means that the primary focus of th- their practice is going to be joint replacements and especially redos, revisions. So highly complex joint replacements and revisions. People will do a fellowship in that. 
And then there's oncology, if you're going to specialize. And there's not very many of those around, of course, because you don't see a lot of bone cancer. But, of course, the academic centers, I'm sure there's somebody. I know there's someone at the University of Iowa. I'm sure there's someone at the University of Nebraska. I do not believe there's one in Des Moines. So it's a really highly specialized and then there's what you call a general orthopedic surgeon, which is pretty much what I do. A general orthopedic surgeon, typically in, in the community, uh, oftentimes in smaller communities, you find more generalists, although there's a lot of generalists in Des Moines. And a general orthopedic surgeon will do like I do, kind of everything. But so I just kind of wanted to talk about a, the, so some of the things that I do that are real common and what they are and how we take care of them. So tennis elbow is when you have pain on the outside of your elbow. So if, you, if your elbow is hanging by your side, the side that's touching your body, that's called golfer's elbow. And on the outside, it's called tennis elbow. And it's really just because they identified these uh, problems early on in golfers and tennis players. And what it is is it's, it's some slight tearing of the tendon that attaches there. Now, all of the tendons that move your wrist up attach on the outside and all the tendons that move your wrist down attach on the inside. So tennis elbows outside, golfer's elbows inside. Usually we do therapy. Sometimes we use these little bands that can take the tension off of them. And then eventually, if you need it, we do what's called a a lateral elbow or a medial elbow reconstruction. And we just make a little incision, open it up a little bit, the tendon itself, roughen the bone up with what we call a rasp, which is like a file. And so underneath the tendon, we'll rasp the bone so the bone is is injured. And then we put an anchor in and tack that down, and then it all overgrows in together. And then you have less pain. So we're kind of making the problem worse so that the body addresses it more acutely and heals it better. So that's tennis elbow and golfer's elbow. And that's what those are. Carpal tunnel syndrome. Now, some people will come to me and they'll say, I have carpal tunnel syndrome. I'll say, what's going on? Well, I have pain in my hand. Well, carpal tunnel syndrome very rarely has pain. Classically, carpal tunnel syndrome is the thumb and the first two fingers will get numb. And there's a a little tunnel on your wrist that the nerve that supplies those three fingers goes through and we just open it up it's a small incision we open it up and the 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 tunnel that they go through and then the nerve has more room so it's not constricted it's so nerves are just wires and if you constrict it it's kind of like clamping a hose so they're not they're not sending the signal and that's why you get the numbness so carpal tunnel numbness first three fingers so thumb and first two fingers open it up pretty quick recovery you're back working Depends on what you're doing, but certainly you can do office work in a few days. Then you have cubital tunnel syndrome, and that's when the nerve goes around the elbow, and that gets compressed in the same kind of mechanism, and it's the pinky finger and the ring finger get very numb. And if you work on those and they don't get better, you can do the same thing. You just open up what's called the cubital tunnel, so the ulnar nerve runs through the cubital tunnel on the inside of the elbow, and we open that tunnel that it goes through and just let the nerve not be so compressed. These are the most common things you see. 
Of course, I take care of wrist fractures and a lot of wrist fractures. We put a little plate on, a little metal plate, and those have come a long way. When I was in training, you kind of had the you had a few basic plates and you would bend them to where they kind of fit. And now they have these plates that are made specifically for different fractures. So the plates for the the wrist fractures are really good now. Another thing is what's called trigger finger or trigger thumb. And so you bend your finger or your thumb and it locks and you can't get it out. You have to push it straight with the other hand usually. That can come from overuse. All of these things except for the fractures and are basically tend to be overuse injuries. So if you're working a lot with your hands, you have a higher chance of these things happening. So what's happening in the trigger thumb and the trigger finger is the tendon. The tendon's just a rope that attaches a muscle to a bone. So the tendons that go up into your fingers attach at the, the little bone at the very end of the finger. They attach directly onto that. And then around the other bones, there's little pulleys so that when the muscle shortens, the finger bends. So the tendon can get swollen. And when it's going through that little pulley, it gets stuck and that's what's called trigger finger or trigger thumb. And so what we do, again, it is we go in and open up that pulley that it's going through. And then the tendon doesn't get stuck there anymore, and you can move your finger without having it lock. So those are kind of the really basic things from the elbow down to the hand that, that you'll see, or that I will see, that a general orthopedic surgeon will see in my practice. Now, I see... Some more complex things, if you have arthritis at the base of the thumb, that's pretty common, but I don't operate on that. That's some highly specialized stuff we send to hand surgeons. And then there's a few other things, but those are kind of the basic things that end up taking you to the orthopedic surgeon's office, you know, 90% of them. And they would, almost any general orthopedic surgeon, so somebody who's not just doing one thing, you know, I do... About 80% of my practice is shoulder and knee, but then I do a big mix of other things, including the fractures, and and uh, these are the things that I do in my practice. And it would be, it would re- reflect out if you have a orthopedic surgeon who's just an orthopedic surgeon and not a joint replacement surgeon or spine or just sports or something like that. M- most of the general orthopedic surgeons would take care of these carpal tunnel, cubital tunnel, tennis elbow, golf elbow, and trigger finger, trigger thumb. And so I never really talk about those things all that much because they're, uh, I would say I don't see nearly as much of that as I do the things that I really like to take care of, which is rotator cuff tears, shoulder arthritis that requires a replacement, uh, knee arthritis that requires a replacement. Those are the things that I really, really love to do. And then, of course, hips that need replacement. But I just thought it'd be interesting to kind of go over some of the things that I don't talk about very often and what they are. And, and uh, you know, the one thing is there's not, there's not a great way to kind of try to avoid these things because it, it just, as you use your hands over time, sometimes they just get a little swollen and things can get stuck. And usually, like I said, all of those operations tend to be releasing tension on either the nerve or the tendon that is uh, functioning So there's our little brief on uh, elbows and hands, and uh, I hope that uh, that helps you understand when you hear these terms, like someone said they have a trigger thumb or a carpal tunnel or a cubital tunnel, a tennis elbow. Now you kind of know what those are and 
what the treatment options are. So thanks for again for spending some time here with me this uh, morning, and uh, you have a blessed week, Iowa.